Hi guys, this is Richard Sachs, host for Lost Arts Radio, and uh, this is a special show. We have our guest, uh, Dr. Bill Warner, returning after doing a series with us on different elements of Islam, and I, I felt like since the topic of Islam was so prominent and important in world events for quite a while now, and, and most of us didn't have the real background to understand it as, as well as we should, including me, I had read the Quran a couple of times, but I didn't fully understand what I was reading, and it seemed, you know, to not really fit together that smoothly. So, I had asked uh, uh, several Islamic friends, and I have quite a few of those, and to come on and tell us about Islam from an inside view, and none of them would do it. And uh, what well, it wasn't that they were too busy, it, th- it was that they were scared. And I didn't understand that. It seemed to make no sense. It was just an academic subject. We were talking about what was written in Scripture, and they wouldn't come on. And I was fortunate to uh, find Dr. Bill Warner, and I actually saw him the first time on Alex Jones's show, and it was really impressive, the work that he had done writing several books for people that want to really get into Islam and understand what's written uh, what Muhammad said, what he was transmitting from Allah. Just incredible. I recommend those books to everybody. They're at politicalislam.com. We'll talk more about that. And so, after that, we had sessions with Dr. Warner on this program about Muhammad, the history of Islam, Sharia, slavery, uh, treatment of ideas toward women, invasion of countries, acceptable personal behavior, uh, slavery, murder, deception, rape, theft, things like that. And um, the Muslim people that I knew were, were born into Islam, and, and all the ones that I have as friends are great people, memorized the scripture from birth, and were taught that jihad leads to paradise. But I just heard a quote from Wofa Sultan, uh, ex-Islam woman, uh, and the author of a book called Agat, uh, a God who hates, and she said, it's impossible to be a good Muslim and a good American at the same time, if you consider a good American as, you know, being, supporting constitutional principles and freedom and things that come from that. But we've got a, mil- a billion and a half, roughly, people that are uh, Muslims right now in the Islam religion, and it's going to be two and a half before long, according to current projections. So, we need solutions in a way that this is not going to turn into a really unpleasant situation even more than it is now. So, I wanted to bring Dr. Warner back and talk about what are the elements that we're going to have to consider to come up with a solution that not just says how bad it is, but to make it better. So, thank you for giving us the time, Dr. Warner. It's really a pleasure to be with you again. Well, good to talk to you. Uh, We're talking about uh, Talking with me about political Islam is like talking to a teenager about sex. You can't do it enough. Yeah, you're not resisting that much. I, I no, no, no. So uh, <laughs> this is my, uh, I guess this has become my favorite topic. Yeah, so, um, you know, as as all the other um, episodes have been, this is completely unscripted. We don't know where it's going to go. But my, my thought for this one is we can go back to any of the parts that we've covered so far for clarification and, you know, more elaboration. But what I really want to do as a theme is look at the things we need to understand about Islam, not to say this is a hopeless situation, but to say, what practically can we do to bring people back together 
so we don't have to have a complete global meltdown as a result of this situation we have now. Well, bold initiative, I must say. Uh, but to deal with Islam, we need to talk about what Islam is. And I think this present show today was uh, prompted by a paper you put together, sort of a petition. Yes. Uh, a Universal Declaration of Independence. I, I, I haven't, I haven't exposed be, that yet. I haven't even decided whether it's a dumb idea or whether I should do anything with it. And, you know, any input would be great. But I, I enjoyed reading it because you typify the best of our civilization in writing this. Why and, don't you uh, tell, you know, nobody knows what this is except you. So why don't you tell people what you're talking about? Well, it's, uh, I don't want to read it, but it's a petition basically stating that Muslims and non-Muslims work together to live on the same planet because everyone agrees we only have one planet and that, that we can live on. There may be others, but they're, it's like having another man being rich. It doesn't help me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but I thought that you, you, this article you've written is the, represents the best of our civilization. I'm getting ready to do a video called I'm a Civilizationalist, Not a Nationalist. And so, since I use the word civilizationalist, I probably need to define that because I use it in a very unusual way. Yeah. But Richard, you've been with me long enough to know that I th <laughs> sort of think unusually anyway, so let's yeah, just continue that's, that's with That's great. It. Okay, so what is, what's it about? Well, I see us as a civilization having as its principles. I don't mean we always fulfill these, but as it's, we have an intellectual principle that are we base reason upon, and that is rational thought basically with deep roots into Aristotelian thought. So that is the scientific method, critical thought, call it what you want to, but that, that is our ideal thought process, is that we are rational beings and that we discuss things in a rational way. And one of the things I like about you is you're sort of hyper-rational, which is kind of nice, actually, to run into it. Sounds like a psychological condition, but okay. <laughs> well, let me explain to you this. If you're not rational, that is a psychological condition. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, I guess. That's good. So anyway, uh, and then we have another principle, because although as a scientist, I can tell you this, that good thinking may be, or the ability to do thinking may be a good thing, but there's another th thing that we need to have in our life, which is a compassion that is based upon what I call the unitary rule of ethics. Now, this unitary rule of ethics has an expression in many religions. In Christianity, it's called the golden rule. Do unto others, you would have them do unto you. Which others, Bill? Well, all others. That's the reason I call it a unitary ethic. Okay. Okay. So, our ethical principle is a unitary ethic. And by this, this ethic, by the way, is quite powerful. We see that, for instance, in our Constitution, we've amended our Constitution more than once to accommodate the ethical principle of do unto others. I give you as evidence of that the women's right to vote. Okay, that's a mm -hmm. unitary ethic because I'm a guy. If I were a woman, I wouldn't want to be denied the right to vote just because I'm not a guy. Right. And then the other thing we've improved our ethical system in legal ways, in legal ways is that we uh, eliminated slavery. Mm -hmm. Because you'll discover this, if you put an ad for a slave in Craigslist, nobody will answer the ad. Nobody wants to be a slave. Right. And recognizing this basic observa observation is, is we eliminated slavery because nobody wants it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. these principles, when they guide us, now, I'm not saying they always guide us. If you just got mugged on a Saturday night, the guy who mugged you is not practicing the golden rule or the unitary ethic. Mm -hmm. right. So, 
But when they guide us, I think we see ourselves in our best light and they, they're the principles of our civilization. Now, we may have other principles, but these are the two that I key on, thought and ethics. As a 76-year-old man, the longer I live, the more I see that ethics are an important part of discussing things with anybody. If you don't agree on ethics, you don't want to do business with people. If you don't agree on ethics, I don't even want to really be your friend. That's not a hostile remark. It's just that if you don't share with me the idea that I don't, you're not going to lie, cheat, and steal, then I'm not interested in starting a relationship with you because I don't want to be lied to. I don't want to be stolen from. I don't want to be cheated. So uh, this, these are important guidelines. And uh, the reason I bring these up is the reason I call myself a, a um, civilizationalist is that there are other civilizations which are not based on this principle. I mean, when the Aztecs were cutting out the hearts of slaves to, as sacrifice, that was not an act of the golden rule. So uh, there are other religions and other thought systems which have not done that. And uh, it's important to me to talk about these. But your article, or article, it's not really an article, it's a sort of a uh, petition you've written here, manifests the best in our civilization, in that it is well thought out, it is well reasoned, and it addresses Muslims and everyone else as being human beings. Now then, we come to the difficulty. The difficulty is that in the Quran we discover that humanity is not, now this is by and large, Everything you say about Islam always has a contradictory side. For instance, Muslims say that we're all children of Adam, which makes us we're all part of one humanity. I like that idea. Mm -hmm. Not so sure about Adam, but I'm, I like the idea that is expressed. It does How mean it, one, one family anyway. Yeah. Yes, we're all one family. The problem is, is that most of the Quran is filled with talk about believer and kafir, K-A-F-I-R, the non-Muslim. That is, a person who does not believe that Muhammad is the prophet of God and that the Quran is a divine work. Mm -hmm. Since I believe that Muhammad was deluded and the Quran is a derivative work, I thoroughly qualify as a kafir. Mm -hmm. right. Now then, it turns out Allah has an attitude about kafirs, which he explicitly stated is they're filthy, they're the lowest form of life, and they're hated. Mm -hmm. So here we run into an immediate dualistic ethical principle. So there, therefore, what you're... This petition sort of has a problem in that it doesn't deal with the fact that Islamic ethics are typically dualistic. Anyway, I've rattled on enough here. Why don't I stop and take a breath and you make a comment? Well, when you said that Allah says that they're hated, um, he doesn't just mean they're hated by Muslims. He means they're hated by, by God, right? Correct. God hates everybody who is the wrong religion. Yes. Okay. And so, because he hates them and they're not worth anything, the best thing for them really is to be killed unless they can be useful by being slaves. Correct. Accurate? Okay. So, and now, if I remember right from an earlier talk we had, the only people who get the option and the special privilege of being slaves instead of being killed, if they're not Muslims, are Jews and Christians. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Anybody else... I guess they could try to become a Jew or a Christian really fast if they wanted to be a slave instead of be killed. But otherwise, they would have to die. Correct. Okay. So, the, the problem that you're leading up to, if I'm following you correctly, is that I'm suggesting in this declaration that I proposed that everybody, you know, just says, well, we have 
I, I can't call it common sense, really, because I know that's been declared unscientific and you're not supposed to have it anymore. But something, <laughs> something well, like I still use it. Oh, good. Okay, me too. I have to admit that. Now that you have too, it's all right. But some kind of sense in you that even if you never read a book, or if you read a book that said God hates you, there is an inner knowing, and I don't know what to call it, maybe you can give me some feedback, that says, no, God doesn't actually hate anybody. God is the source of love, and if we want to emulate that, we just, you know, killing each other is not the way we do it. And that is kind of an innate knowledge, and on the 4th of July it reminded me of the fact that the uh, people writing the Declaration of Independence and signing it, they didn't cite some respected journal. They said, we think these things are self-evident, and I think that's a deep concept. Yes, very much so. It's uh, the, The Declaration of Independence, which prompted you to write this, is a remarkable doctrine document, not only politically, but I would argue that it is, in a strange way, a spiritual document as well. Yeah, and it's it's also saying that, you know, you don't have to have been told this and memorized it from somebody else because you came from your creator. You have all these rights and all these things are self-evident and true. Even if no one in the universe agrees with you, you still know they're true. Mm-hmm. And one of those things should be that God doesn't hate you and want you to murder people. I would agree. Right? And, and But, you know, that doesn't mean that anybody else would agree with that. So, what I'm looking for is a way to awaken that knowing within people of any belief system so they can stop killing each other. And, and I'm, I, by the way, I'm all for you. I don't... Uh, uh, yes, I agree. And, and by the way, we all, I rem, I'm going to, this may be a slight sidebar, but I was raised in a religion which held that its unique view of spirituality was the only one that would get you to heaven. Right. <clears throat> this is not an uncommon thing, but I can remember as a child, I grew up basically in deep country. The, the yeah. entire county I was raised in had one traffic light, okay? Okay. So there was a whole lot of nature <laughs> where I grew up. And I remember looking at the stars and also walking in the woods and seeing that God didn't create just one kind of tree. As a matter of fact, as I walked through the forest, it was clear that God was on a tree creating binge. There were all kinds of trees. Yeah, probably more than have been discovered. So anyway, so to me, this brought up the possibility that perhaps there was, just like there was more than one tree that was created, that there was more than one vision of God that was possible. So I'm I'm just sharing with you my own little insight yeah. as a young child, as a teenager actually, yeah. about my uh, a theological question. And to me, it was self-evident. It yeah, wasn't an idea exactly that I read in a book. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get at that self-evident thing and make because, like what you just said, there are a lot of religions that believe that their particular interpretation. And the people that share it, that's the only group that's going to heaven. And not only is everybody else not getting to, they're probably going to go to hell and be tortured forever because God loves them so much. And I'm just (laughs) saying that there is a self-evident knowing that you're referring to that would not lead to this constant, you know, condemnation of everybody else as being wrong, but just saying, look, the ideas are secondary. The first thing is who made us? 
and that that's not just some of us, that's all of us, and you're not supposed to attack your brothers and sisters. I like it. You know why I like it? Because I don't like being attacked. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and you're probably not anxious to be the attacker either. No, 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 although some would say I am an attacker, and I say, no, I'm an explainer. People would have accused me of attacking Islam, I say, Show me one case in which I've even said is anything about Muhammad did or uh, was in the Quran is bad. I just say, I object to it or it implies this. Yeah, and, and the other thing people would say is that you're a racist. What's with that? Um, it's because they don't agree with you, but why don't you explain why you're not a racist? Well, I'm not going to defend myself on the basis of race other than to say, by the way, I've, one of the things I do with insults is I never say, no, I'm not. I mean, that's... That's oh, okay. playing their okay. game. It's like, oh, what do you mean? I was one of my best friends is black. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't do that. I was just on a radio show where they determined I was a racist. Oh, you and, were? Yes, and the reason is because I was supporting the president. Um, not about what? anything to do with race, but just because <laughs> I, I thought he was doing some good things and was a sincere person who was open to learning more. So I'm a racist, and what I would say um, about you being a racist for the things that you're teaching about Islam, first of all, is that it's important to note that Islam is not a race. <laughs> you noticed. It, well, yeah, I did figure that out. For that <laughs> it's a belief system, right? And, and even Eskimos can have it. Anybody can have it if they want to, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that they haven't made much progress in the polls, as far as I know. <laughs> but it's not even a race, so it's not a racist issue. As a matter of fact, Islam greatly insists upon the fact that race is not a part of being a Muslim. Okay, good. So, yeah. I mean, even, I've even heard Muslims who were irritated at me say, no, it, it's got nothing to do with race. Yeah. Exactly. Actually, I think the word racist is used because it is the strongest, most negative word you can use, and I'm going to emphasize this, in polite company. Yeah. We're out yeah. on the street, there are other words you would use for me, but you can't use those yet in polite company. Yeah. So I think that's the reason for it is it's simply the worst word they know how to use. And, and it's just bizarre because as far as they can tell, all humans probably started, you know, in the recent epoch, like a couple hundred thousand years ago from a place in southern Africa. And they were not different races and they just migrated to different parts of the world where their skin color had to change because of sun exposure. And that's about it. You know, it's, it's not real. So, but uh, I do. What is real is is that people, when we try to be rational, people be can be respond with irrationality. That's I guess that's the point we're making. Yeah, here. yeah. And if you're going to try to debate, you're going to waste your life doing that. You know, it, it's like you need. I think what we need to do is make the knowledge appealing to the people that are open to learning, and the ones that aren't, they're not going to until they're ready. But I think there's a lot that could... I'm, okay, here's a question. Among the one and a half billion plus Muslims that are going up fast because of family sizes, how many of those, and this, there's no way to really know that I'm sure of, but how many of those are actually somewhat in touch with knowing what is real is in conflict with what they're memorizing? I don't know. I don't know. But there is something now that's available to all Muslims that has not been heretofore present in the... There's several, there's two unique things that are going on about Islam today in the world, and they have to do with knowledge. They're these. 
for the first time in human history, the doctrine of Islam is clearly laid out in such a way that anybody can understand it. Anybody. Mm-hmm. That is unique. Heretofore, the knowledge of Islam was always in the hands of specialists, uh, Arabic history professors, Arabic linguists, uh, theologians, imams. Right. That and is you're, always, you're talking about your book series, right? Well, it's not just my books. I mean, Spencer has done this. Boston has done this. The knowledge of the true nature of Islam in an intellectual sense is for the first time in human history well known or can oh. be known for the price of two six-packs of beer, say, okay? And, do, you think, uh, do you think that very many Muslims have taken the trouble to learn those things at this point? Well, I'm now getting ready to come, turn to a second point here. The knowledge is commonly available. Muslims, for the first time, live in a society in which they can be criticized on a factual basis. This has not happened before. Let me give you an example. I was, gave a talk one time in Calgary, Canada, and I, the man who was the sponsor persuaded me in a weak moment that I would do three successive lectures. Okay. So I gave my three successive lectures, and it was in a large auditorium, and on the front row close to me was a woman who gave the appearance of being Pakistani. It turns out she was. Mm-hmm. And my first lecture, she wrote furiously, one note after another. And when it came time for questions, she asked repeated questions. On the second lecture I gave, she took a few notes and only asked one or two questions. On the third lecture I gave, she took no notes at all. Then she waited until the room emptied, and she came up to me and she extended her hand and she said, Hi, my name is such and such. I am from Pakistan, and I am a born Muslim. She says, I want to thank you for what you've done here today. She says, I opposed your being able to come to Calgary. I went to the mayor's office and said that you were a hater. And the mayor looked up you on the web and says, no, he's not a hater. He's a critic. And so she said, although I opposed your coming and speaking, you have treated me today with respect. You're not emotional. And everything that you've said is based on rational ideas as you understand them. And she says, I must say, you've given me many questions. I must now ask my religious teachers. So this is a story in which a woman sat there for three hours of my talks and basically said, you have caused me to think a great deal. And no, you're not a hater and no, you're not a racist. You're actually quite respectful in the way that you deal with issues. Uh So I I tell you this story as a way of saying it can be done. Yeah, your trip to Calgary was worth it, right? Oh, that that alone. I've I've been a teacher for a long time and, and seeing the lights turn on is a teacher's best payroll benefit. Yeah, exactly. In other words, any really great teacher wants to make themselves unnecessary. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, pretty neat. And, wow. and self-education is the highest form of education, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. You just need to start it. Right. Get it started. Inspire it, I guess. So, uh, it is... And, and it by is the way, possible. let me say this. I was always yeah. a teacher. I was never an educator. Okay, what do you mean by that? An educator is a bureaucrat who works for the state in a classroom. Okay. And he enforces state doctrine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, That's if, you they, came to my classes, if you came to my classes, you might learn something the state did not approve of. <laughs> well, that's, that's why the state had to make the Department of Education, even though the Constitution says there is no such thing. Well, that, we can get off on the Department of Education, but if I were president, I would carpet bomb the Department of Education and the Department of State. Well, you could just close them instead of killing all those people. But oh, I, somehow I, or another, the Department of Education is a certain glee. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good Sorry, yeah. Uh, as you can see, I'm not fully evolved yet. <laughs> hey, I still have a little bit of emotion left about that. But, you know, it's interesting because I can tell you from very, very recent experience in the PhD world, um, the way you become a real scientist is you make sure that you have no emotion and no opinion. And then you can be a scientist. Well, <laughs> I have a problem with both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it tells you a lot about why science has gone the way it has. But um, in any case, Actually, I, right. I, I think what you've just pointed out is that in individual cases, there are um, people who listen to you. And uh, just a technical point that you brought up about her going to her teachers and asking some questions I don't think most people know that who are not Muslim understand the difference between um, an imam and a mullah and other levels of religious authorities like that. Can you say anything about that to clarify it? Well, an imam typically is a Sunni. A mullah is a Shia. So there we have two differences. They're both leaders. Now, okay. the word imam can also have political implications as well as religious implications. But in general... An imam is a religious leader. Now, he may not even be fully formally trained. That is, he could be like a... You can have Christians who will lead prayer meetings and they don't have any theological degrees. Yeah. That is a personal thing. And within, you can have mosques in which the, the imam is elected by the group, but he's not really the skilled scholar. Now, there is also a group of scholars whom I think I remember the word is ulima. And so the scholars are the real people who lay out Islam and they teach the imam who can in turn replicate the work in front of the audience. But here's the thing. Muslims are not encouraged to do critical thought and they're not even encouraged to do a lot of reading of the doctrine because what they are encouraged to do is to listen to the imam and he will tell them what they need to know. Okay. That's the reason it's so important, this business about knowledge about Islam becoming democratized. For the first time, a Muslim has an approach to the knowledge of Islam without talking to the imam. So that's the importance of that. But it would be going against the suggestion of the religion itself, right, to do that. Yes. As a matter of fact, the Quran itself says, and this is one of the more strange questions, is that a, a Muslim is not supposed to ask difficult questions. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop right there. Right, Those and this is questions. Question. This is Muhammad who was telling them that, right? Yes. Do not ask difficult questions. And the Sharia books repeat the same thing. Right. That is, this is a matter, Muslims are called believers. As a matter of fact, the word Muslim rarely occurs in the Quran. I think it only occurs two or three times. Wow. Okay. Instead, they're called believers. And what do they believe? They believe that Allah is the source of the Quran. It's perfect. And they believe that Muhammad is his prophet, the final prophet. So that is what they believe. And so, I mean, they're not doubters. I was, I was taking critical thought, doubt is encouraged. Yeah, yeah, doubt of everything, actually. And so, it's, in other words, we want to examine the intellectual roots of all problems. Scientists and mathematicians are very fond of doing this. As a matter of fact, if you no longer ask difficult questions, you would no longer have any Nobel Prizes in the sciences because every scientist receives a Nobel Prize because he asked a difficult question and then said, and here is a reasonable answer. Right. So okay. the, this, this approach of being rational, which you and I sort of take for granted, is basically set outside of the uh, 
his, uh, the doctrine of Islam because they do not believe in critical thought. They believe in authoritative thought. Do right. you understand the difference? Yeah, it's kind of what science is becoming in our society now. It's like proving that something that's going to kill you is safe and effective. And, you know, getting paid as long as you repeat the acceptable information, it's just like a religion. So, Well, unfortunately, you know, scientists need money to do their experiments. And yeah. unfortunately, with the money, there are strings attached. But yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, people can be bought. Being used on people, cities, counties, states, all kinds of things. But the other thing that you said they have to believe is that if, if you want to be a good Muslim, you have to believe that Allah is, you know, the source is, is God and the source of the scripture, the Quran, and I guess the Quran and the other, what about the other two? Is, is Allah also the source of the... No, he is Zira not. No, no, no. Muhammad is the source of the Sunnah of Muhammad. That okay. is, he okay. is the, there are 91 verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to live a life exactly like Muhammad. That is, he is what I call the divine human prototype. This is God's perfection walking around on earth as best he can do it as a guy. Okay. And, and if you're a woman, even though he wasn't a woman, he said how women should behave, right? Yes. So he, matter of fact, he had quite a bit of comments about women, uh, one of which I'll never forget, which is, uh, I have seen Helen is mostly filled with women. Why, Muhammad? Because they were not grateful to their husbands. Exactly. Exactly. And they are limited in their intelligence. And limited in their religiosity. Uh, man, what sort of thing you wake up that, on today? Isn't it interesting that the modern version, at least of some of the major feminist movements, think that um, Islam is the ideal belief system for women? Ah, uh, Richard, Richard. How? I mean, anyone who's just casual, a casual observation of the doctrine of Islam, by that I mean what Muhammad said and did. I mean, I wrote an entire book called The Doctrine of Women because I was so appalled by the way that women were treated in the Quran and in the Sunnah of Muhammad. I mean, uh, women can be made sex slaves. Uh, they can be beaten. And mm -hmm. there's even rules on how to beat your wife. Yeah. And now, by the way, Richard, I've been married for over 50 years, and I can understand the impulse of a man being married to a woman decade after decade to... Uh, become enraged, but that doesn't mean you have to act out your rage. Yeah. In Islam you have in Islam you have rules on how to actually crank up the progression of brutality. Yeah, and they don't don't think they have anything in there about how women are supposed to beat the men when they get enraged. No, there's not there's not a list there. <laughs> Unless I missed I it. I can give you a story of what I told by my grandmother about how that happened with one woman, but we won't indulge it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, amazing. There, there are other things happening below the surface there, but, but my main concern is still that in the religion of Islam, as if I understand it correctly, and I certainly don't have the background that people born into the religion do, but from just what I've gotten from studying uh, your material and others since then, is that it's a religion that says that murder can give you paradise. Yep. And I think that's kind of the essence of the issue, because if if you can get into paradise by committing murder as long as it's the right people you murder, or the right country that you invade, or the right people that you deceive, or the right women that you rape, and, and stuff like that, that's kind of a problem, because 
(laughs) Generally, if you want peace between different people, you can't have some of them killing the other ones. And I just, I mean, it can look like an insurmountable problem, but I I really want to see a way through it because I don't want to see the end game that the global rulers are pushing us to by funding the terrorists, you know, raping everybody in Scandinavia and killing policemen and doing all these things and saying, you know, Allahu Akbar. Um, It's clearly a religion that even if they get killed doing it, they're promised to go right to paradise, if I understand correctly. Actually, it is the only way, uh, the belief system of Islam says that when you die, you suffer what is called the punishment of the grave, which is left a little vague, but sounds pretty ominous to me. I mean, then the other thing is you have to suffer through the uncertainty of judgment day. And so, if you kill in jihad, kill a kafir, or you yeah. are killed while trying to harm kaffirs, yeah. you go directly to heaven. Or actually, they don't call it heaven, they call it paradise. Paradise, right. And uh, immediately, I mean, you're taken up, and I remember yeah. one of the things is uh, your blood smells like musk, which I think was a desirable yeah. perfume smell. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and probably no harmful chemicals in it either. <laughs> so that's the way, really... You, you might ahead. be, let me, let me give you a largely unknown detail about Muhammad. He admitted that he was uh, a lover of both women and beautiful smells. Oh, he loved perfume. Okay, neat. So, um, that's a very strong incentive to go find somebody to kill. Well, it's a free... It's a, I mean, Richard, if you really believe this, I'm talking about... And remember, these are believers Yeah. who do not right. have doubt, then what's not to like about it? I mean... Exactly. You, you, we've we've gone over the picture of uh, paradise, haven't we? I mean, it's uh, it's uh, a hedonistic pleasure dome. Yeah, if you think that there's nothing beyond the sense delights of the world, then paradise is perfect. And Actually, it is the most sensual, delightful. I've read of different kinds of ideas about what happens to you after you die of reward and punishment. Yeah, and uh, they have the most hedonistic. You can, you can drink wine and not get a hangover. You can have unlimited sex. Uh, Except, you know, the only problem with that is if you happen to be a woman, it doesn't tell too much about what you get to do when you go to paradise, does it? Well, you're not the first one who's noticed this omission. And uh, I don't know. Maybe all, maybe what, this is, I'm making this up. Maybe uh, you're transformed into a man. Yeah, if you're really lucky, right? (laughs) But no, I'm just, I'm making that up. I know. So, so the, but it just leaves it kind of an open question. Well, there's a lot of open questions I have about Islam and its treatment of women. I mean, uh, but that would be a difficult I, question that you're not supposed to ask, I guess, right? I think it is one of those difficult questions. By the way, uh, before I, I made a note to my on my pad of paper that I mentioned yeah. something that was unique about what we have with Islam. For the first time in human history, the apostates are now in public. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I mean, you have Noni Darwish, you have yeah. Wafa Sultan, these are just the famous ones, Amil Amani, yeah. uh, Qurashi, you have all of these, Ibn Warwick, and by, by the way, some of the best scholarship, I don't know if you're familiar with Ibn Warwick or not, but he is a superb scholar of Islam, he's an apostate. He wrote one of the best books on Islam I ever read. It was one of the first ones, and it's still one of the best. It's called Why I'm Not a Muslim. 
But the point is, is that, and then there's ex-Muslim TV run by a kid. Now, at 76, a kid, somebody, to me, is anybody under the age of 30. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, when I go into a university campus now, they, they have children walking around. So, anyway, mild humor. Uh, so, the, the existence of apostates, because here's one thing that you can't say to an apostate. You can say to me, Bill, you're a racist, and Bill, you don't know anything about Islam. Yeah. How do you say that to an apostate? Particularly one who's already memorized the Quran. I know apostates like Sam Solomon who can quote the Quran endlessly in the original Arabic. Yeah. How do you say to Sam Solomon, who was a former jurist, that is, he was actually a jurist at uh, Al-Azhar University, uh, then we also have a Shia version of this. He was a jurist in, in Iran. He had the level of number one, which means he could be a jurist, uh, basically an attorney on death cases. So mm -hmm. how do you tell a former jurist scholar of Islam, oh, you don't know about Islam. So these apostates are very powerful people. As a matter of fact, so much so that Alawaki, who was, was it Alawaki? Ooh, I'm not remembering perhaps. Anyway, he was called the Al-Qaeda Imam. Yeah. Said yeah. if it were not for the laws of apostasy, Islam would cease to exist. In other words, if people could go to the door and just walk outside, they'd all leave the palace. Well, that, ha that was demonstrated right after Muhammad died, right? Well, actually, Richard, you're quite accurately correct there. Yes, because when Muhammad died, there were a whole lot of Muslims who said, you know, we're out of here. We, like, yeah. we tried the Islam thing, we liked it, but now we're gone. Right, right. And then what happened? Well, Abu Bakr said not so fast, and he proceeded to have the Rita Wars, the uh, apostasy wars, until finally the Muslims said, you know, are they former Muslims who are being killed? Says, you know... We've rethought the whole issue, and now that we think about it, we like being a Muslim just fine, so please yeah. don't kill us anymore. Sounds like a good religion. So, was Abu Bakr, though, was just being a good Muslim, right? Because Muhammad had already clarified that apostates have to be killed. Yes. Abu Bakr was his closest friend. Abu Bakr was his biggest financial supporter. Abu Bakr was the first caliph. And uh, he was, gosh, he was as good as they get. He's the only Muslim who is mentioned obliquely in the Quran. What does so, that mean? Uh, he, so anyway, if he did it, he was the what I call the shadow of Muhammad on earth. They, because he was directly taught by Muhammad for years. As a matter of fact, as long as Muhammad was a teacher, really, Abu Bakr was his student. So whatever Abu Bakr did was exactly what he was taught by Muhammad. So therefore... As a matter of fact, in the Sunnah, there's the Sunnah of Muhammad. There's also the Sunnah of his companions. So there are people like Umar and Abu Bakr. The things they said and did are considered almost as good as that of Muhammad. They're called the okay. rightly guided caliphs. What, what does it mean when you say there, he was mentioned obliquely or something like that? What as one it? who hid in the cave. He's, Muhammad, when he was fleeing Mecca, hid in a cave with Abu Bakr. And this event is mentioned obliquely briefly in the Quran in one verse. Yeah. So okay. whatever Abu Bakr did was what Muhammad told him to do and had, and gave him a direct example, the rightly guided caliph. Okay, okay. So, I mean, all the things that you're saying so far make it seem kind of unrealistic that any of these people would, would happily give up the idea that murder gets you into paradise because it's a direct teaching. Yep. I mean, it's, it's in the Quran... It's in the Sirah, the life of Muhammad, and it's in the Hadith. 
it does not get more official. It is core doctrine. Wow. So the only way that you could possibly get beyond that is you, you're so connected to that internal self-evident knowing state that even beliefs come second. Yes. Yes. That's exactly correct. And, and by the way, out of all the people you can admire, to, uh, in my mind, one of the biggest admirations I have is for an apostate from Islam because they have moral courage as well as physical courage. Because you see, one of the things that's hard for people to understand about Islam is, is that really you're not an individual in Islam as much as you're part of the Ummah. And it's a very community-centered way of life. It's yeah. somewhat like a, the hive, the swarm, the pack, the pod. And I use those terms not at all derogatorily, but as a manifestation of the emphasis on the sociability of the person as opposed to the individual. Right. Both systems have an advantage. But the advantage, the, one of the reasons it's very difficult to convert a Muslim is, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which has been called the Protestant Rome. If you quit one Protestant church and go to another, you may hit, you may get some hurt conversations with former members of the, your members of your former community, but they're not remotely going to kill you or even try to trash talk you. Right. I'll be sorry you left, but that's the end of it. So it does not take any courage to move from one form of Christianity to another, or even to drop out of the church altogether. Yeah. But to be a but to be a Muslim and to leave it means you have to have a moral courage, and you have to have a physical courage. And you also have to be willing to leave your family and your community behind, all your yeah. connections and all your friends. Noni Darwish, for instance, when she became a Christian, her father said, you are dead to me. I could have you killed, but I will not. Never contact me again. You are dead to me. Wow. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. It, yeah, it is. I guess he believes in uh, what Muhammad taught. Well, he was, I mean, he's a Muslim. Why not? Yeah. So, are, are these various apostates that you mentioned that are well-known, are they being attacked? No, they're not. I do not know of any killing of apostates. One of the most frequent questions I am asked, although less than it used to be, was, am I afraid? Well, I do have fear, but it's not for my physical existence. It's fear that I won't succeed in my mission. Yeah. So, uh, and now, let me say this, and I've said this to everybody, I have never been threatened at all with a life-threatening, I've been told I'm stupid. I've been told I'm a bigot, a hater, a racist, and an Islamophobe, but right. no one has ever said we're coming to get you, Bill. And so I think I wonder, one of those I'm, reasons is why, how I conduct why, myself. Why, why is that? Why? Because the Quran says that you're supposed to um, kill the people that are, you know, saying anything that could detract from Islam, right? Yes, but what I do is when I just I quoted a hadith basically earlier. I've seen heaven. I've seen hell, and it's mostly filled with women. Uh -huh. Did I say that Muhammad was a bad person for saying that? No. Did I condemn him for saying that? No. I just said that's what he said. I disagree with him, but that's what he said. Okay. okay. As a matter of fact, my experience with human beings is, is if there is a heaven and a hell, hell would have more men in it than, than it does women. Yeah, I mean, historically, men have done most of the atrocities. It's just that some of the women are trying to really catch up by being as bad as men now. But I think they've got a ways to go. Right. They're so, trying. But anyway, the point is, is I don't condemn him. I don't laugh and holler about him. I don't condemn him. I don't mock. It's like the lady said in Calgary, you've shown respect. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, there's something else there here that plays into this, is that one 
Coptic Christian said, Muslims respect men like you because you say exactly who you are, you stand up in public, says you manifest strength. And what is the one thing that a Muslim is commanded to respect from the Kafir is strength. Mm. So they said, oddly enough, you have a peculiar, it says Muslims have a respect for someone who is the strong man. Where, where does it talk, do you remember where it talks about respecting a Kafir who's strong? No, I do not. Is that, that's an interesting statement. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's not necessarily... Well, wait a minute, we can, give it, we can give an example of this in Muhammad's life. Okay. He attacked no one as long as he was weak. When he went to Medina and became stronger and had a militia that could report to him, that is when he became active against the Kafir in a, in a physical way. So yeah. he was strong enough. I'm just saying there's not a verse. Instead, we have a, the arc of the life of Muhammad. No, that's a that's a great point. In fact, even after they had started attacking other other communities and things just because they weren't Muslim, they would stop if they got news that the ones they were going to attack were really powerful. Yes. Look, there's an element of common sense there. Yeah. Yeah. Well also you Muhammad yeah. was always a very practical man. Right. You can call him an idealist if you want to, but he was also exceedingly practical. I mean, in a strange way, I'm an, ad- I'm an admirer of some of Muhammad's qualities. Uh, so advice I give to people is never despise your enemies. Always respect them because they're strong enough to oppose you and you should respect strength. So, Yeah. Okay. Now, the Sirah, which is one of the three scriptures, the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. The Sirah, who did you say that was written? That's the life of Muhammad. So That's the life that? of Muhammad. As a matter of fact, I've been told that Sirah, as an Arabic word, just simply means a biography or a life story. Yeah. So, who wrote it? Well, it was written nearly 200 years after Muhammad died, and it was written by Ibn Ishaq. Okay. In other words, Isaac. The man was named Isaac. He was an an Iraqi. And we don't have his original manuscript. We have the manuscript of his student, Hisham, I believe. Mm, Okay. So, but now there's something very interesting here, Richard. When did I say this book was written? Nearly 200 years after he died. Yeah. Well, how, that was about like as long ago as, as George Washington lived. Yeah, so the question is, how did that information hold together in that period? In particular, I'm, I'm looking, I'm casting my, my bookshelf, one of my bookshelves is right behind my computer screen. I look up and I see The Life of Muhammad. Um, it's 800 pages of fine print. I measure just what I did for that moment. 800 pages of fine print. Sometimes it even tells you what color robes he wore, what color the camel he rode. I mean, what he had for drink or eat. So if you contemplate this and think, now what did George Washington have for breakfast? Well, we have a clue. Yeah, exactly. Right. But then there's something else true about storytelling. I grew up in a rural culture that was before television. Okay. I mean, I grew up in the deep woods. Yeah. And one of the things, our favorite form of entertainment was storytelling. Mm-hmm. My grandmother told me endless stories. She made a storyteller out of me. You go to the store porch, which was the center of the little community, and people would jog, gossip, and tell stories. Here's the truth about a story. The longer it's told, the better it gets. Yeah, 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 true, I remember. More and more, more, and more humorous details or poignant details or whatever else are added, more insight. So the... So I think when I see an 800-page biography, I go, you know, this story's been told more than once and improved mightily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Y- yeah. Short, I, think, I don't believe it. 
there's there's no way to really tell what details survived the same and which ones were changed, right? Exactly. So, <clears throat> and uh, so as a result, I do not believe the story as told. It's just there's too much information there. I mean, come on, yeah. what color camel he rode? But you but you don't know what the real story was either, right? Well, there are those who even argue is there a story there at all <clears throat> of a real yeah. story. We have to understand this, that in the days of Muhammad, there is not a single piece of evidence that is outside of Islam that shows his existence. Not a single piece of evidence. Not a coin, not a document, nothing. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> so the only thing we have is the stories. We have, we have the big story, the Sirah, and then we have the little bitty stories, the Hadith, which are his traditions. Okay, and who, who wrote those? Well, there were several major collectors, because what they did, they collected them. But here's the kicker. They all occurred about two centuries after Muhammad died. So you have people like Bukhari, who was, as I recall, an Iraqi. And he went around collecting stories from old men who could tell him stories. He recorded all of them. Okay. And he recorded it as told nearly 90,000. I don't see how he could do it, but let's say that that's true. Yeah. He then threw out over 80,000 of them and kept up with only 7,000 hadith. And what he did was, is he evidenced by the chain, not how reasonable the story was, but the chain of who told the story. Well, I was told the story by my father who heard it from his uncle, who heard it from his, his niece, who heard it from blah, 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 all the way back to the time of Muhammad. Yeah. So to believe that 200 years after Muhammad died, people could still remember all these little fine details, mm-hmm. is simply not probable. I mean, it's like come eight on. Or Eight or ten generations, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's too many. Yeah, we've, amazing. And we've all so the, seen. Have you ever actually participated in the game telephone? Do they even still do that anymore? I remember playing it in second or first grade. I think, yeah. And it was humorous, wasn't it? It was great. It was amazing, actually. Actually, there's a whole lesson in human psychology with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, tell people what telephone is in case they don't know. What it is, you set in a circle and you whisper something to the person next to you. He then whispers exactly the same thing in the next year, and everybody whispers the same thing that they heard until it comes back in the circle again. And then you say what the last person heard and what the first person said. You're like, oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's only a circle, like, you know, a 10 kids or something. Right, right, right. But it is astounding how much the story changes. The whole subject of the story can even change. Yeah, and that's with a time lapse of five minutes. Right. So what happens in 200 years? Well, I'm just yeah. expressing my doubts here, Richard, that it would all be you know, collected together in the right way. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And I guess the only thing that really matters is not whether it's the same as, as what really happened, but the fact that, as we've talked about in previous versions, there's only one, uh, or previous episodes, there's only one version of the story that's told now. Yes, very interesting. Only and one version. All the others have been destroyed. Yes. And it's important that in the, in the Quran, when uh, Uthman pulled together all of the versions of the Quran that existed, bits and pieces, it was said some were written on leaves, palm leaves, other verses were written on the shoulder bones of animals and written in the hearts of men, which basically means they were memorized. Yeah. So all of the source documents were brought together in one place and put together by a secretary, I think was Zaid. And once he produced the new recension, is the technical word here, all of the original source documents were burned. 
Yeah, that's an idea. one reason I can think of that you would burn the source documents. And so that, that nobody is, would waste time arguing over whether it was right or not, right? Exactly. It also means the source documents differed each, with each other and what they said. And it is well known that they did differ because that was the reason that they decided to put together an official version was there were beginning to be many versions. You see, the Muslims used to rag on the Christians saying, aha, ha, 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 your New Testament has different variations in the book of Matthew, for instance. You have more than one. Yeah. So they were catching the what they call the thing was the Christian disease, and so the whole purpose of creating this official document was to get rid of all the variation. Right. Well, right. it just makes me more interesting. What was in what they what, what was in those books they burned? Yeah, it's too bad. It's so hard to go back and check. Oh, listen, the time machine would teach us many interesting things. I know that's still worth doing. Um, <laughs> so, in the when you're looking at. Um, and I know your time is really tight, so I'm watching our clock, but, but we have a little bit left. So, if you look at the motivation that made people really take on Islam and, and believe in it, uh, and you look at the very beginning, because I, th I think this motivation issue is going to be important in knowing whether there's any way to harmonize people of Muslim and non-Muslim religion so that they can you know, be nice to each other at this point and avoid world conflagration. And the motivation varied a little depending on which period you're looking at. For example, from what you've said, when Muhammad was in the original place, whether it was Mecca or Palmyra or whatever it archaeologically really was, he was trying, he started out trying to convince people to become Muslims because he said, Look, I ran into this angel that told me I have to start a new religion. It's coming directly from God, and it says everything that you believe is wrong, and your ancestors and everybody is, are going to suffer for it, so I'm here to save you, basically. All you have to do is take on my religion. And over, I think, 10 or 13 years, I forget which, he got 150 people to, to agree, right? Correct. And so their motivation was, was it 10 or 13 years? Which one? Thirteen years. Thirteen. Ten okay. years was in Medina. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, during those thirteen years, those hundred and fifty people, which is probably a small fraction of the ones he totally talked to, they were saying, yeah, I agree with you, because they had some feeling from somewhere that he was probably right. But it wasn't that, it wasn't very many people. And those people, it seemed like, were looking at it critically to just try to figure out whether it made sense, right? And that was their motivation, the first 150. Well, of course, their ultimate motivation was to avoid the... Uh, th there's three fundamental spiritual questions. Who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? And so, Muhammad had an answer of where you were going, you can be going to paradise. That's yeah. a powerful thing. And it's a powerful thing if you think he's right. Well, yes, what do they call themselves? They call themselves the believers, yeah, but the, they still had to face the question, do I think he's right or not? Well, they obviously thought he was. Yeah. By all accounts, he was a charming man who was very persuasive. He, he, he was, he, every, just that, he was charming and persuasive. Okay. And by the way, he had one other quality. He never gave a wink and a nudge. When you read the doctrine that was left behind about him, he never expressed any doubt. He never, he was all, well, he did have some doubt in the very beginning. But after he became convinced he was right, he stayed strictly with his message. He kept on doing the same things, mm -hmm. and he was relentless. 
I mean, uh, one of the business, one of the things you have in being a good salesman is you never give up. Well, Muhammad never gave up. Right. Yeah, he was very persistent and focused. But in that first 13 years, the teachings did not include the belief that you had to kill non-believers, right? That is quite correct. Now, in Medina, there is no jihad in the Quran written in Mecca. But in the Quran written in Medina, 24% of it is about jihad. Well, that is not a small idea. That's not just a, a verse or two. It right. is a systemic doctrine. 21% of Bukhari is about jihad. And I forget now how much of the Sirah, but over half of it. So this is, that, that's when people talk about reforming Islam. I point out to them, look, if it was just a verse or two, all right, you could do some mental gymnastics and get around that. <clears throat> but when the doctrine is 24, that's a, basically a quarter of it. Well, that's, mm-hmm. That's no longer uh, a small item. That is a, well, it's a systemic doctrine. Well, but, yeah, if you start saying that that's when, you know, violence and murder and stuff came in, the, some of the current teachings, I guess they're imams, have, have said on video that I've seen, well, yeah, but to us in our congregation, jihad means our struggle to be a better person. Great. Now right. then, let's examine that with, with Bill's, Statistical analysis. Okay. The struggle, the jihad, and jihad just means struggle. It does not mean holy war. The struggle to be a better person is indeed found in Bukhari. That is, I said he collected about 7,000 hadith and about 21% of them are about jihad, so that's about 1,400 hadith. Yeah. If you take all those jihad hadiths and lay them out on a table, you'll discover that less than 2% of them refer to any form of jihad as a spiritual struggle. So when these imams say that by the, for them, jihad is the spiritual struggle, they are correct, but only 2% correct. Okay, okay. So I go, fine, I'm glad you do that, and I personally hope you stay the course. Yeah. But do not try to tell me that that is what the hadith practices tells you to do, and it is certainly not the example of Muhammad. The example of Muhammad was not just one of passivity, but of bold action. As a matter of fact, he was a very bold man, outrageously bold. Yeah, yeah. So I say to the imam who says, we only preach the jihad of spiritual struggle, great, keep on doing it, see if you can persuade some other imams to do it, but will you, sir, condemn, will you, there's a word I want here, abjure Muhammad's jihad, in which was involved in killing. Will you tell me that Muhammad was wrong, those those 98% of those hadiths? You tell me that the Quran is wrong when it talks about the prescriptive quality of jihad. Don't tell me what you do. I want you to deny the Quran and I want you to deny the truth of the Sunnah of Muhammad. That they will not do. Right, right, exactly. That's because that's his apostasy. Yeah, exactly. That there's that's just strictly forbidden. And I think, like you said, in the uh, in the Sirah, it's it's very clear. In case anybody is not understanding it, that jihad involves killing non-believers. Oh, they're very explicit. In the Sirah, it would make a fabulous movie. In the Sirah, yeah. we even told yeah. about how different sword strokes did this to that arm, that to a head. Uh, I mean, it is highly detailed. When Islamic State broadcasts its videos of how they torture kill people, yeah, they're simply copying the Sirah. Okay, okay, wow, that's right. So the idea of radical Islam is a complete misnomer, right? Well, before we talk about radical Islam, we need to talk about Islam. Islam is the doctrine, religious, 
and political and civilizational doctrine that's found in the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith. That is what Islam is. Let me say it another way. If it's in the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith, it is Islam. If it is not in the Sirah, the Hadith, and the Quran, it is not Islam. Yeah. So therefore, we have a definition of what Islam is. So now then we have to say, well, what about the, how do we, when you say a radical or a peaceful, which part of the Quran are we talking about? Which part of the Sirah are we talking about? And so far as Reformation, how do you reform that which is perfect? That's amazing. And, and I think that's probably the reason that we haven't reached a conclusion on my original question. You know, how do you get people to realize that there's a higher calling above your cherished belief, whatever that is, and that calling is for everybody to um, become a harmonious family again. I love it. And I'm all yeah, for it. I guess we I got it's gonna take a little bit more work to see how, how to appeal to people on that basis. But um, I hate to stop, but I think that your preset time is pretty much over. I don't want to keep you and um, I really appreciate your input. It, it's it's enough to make people think a lot more deeply than maybe they have about the whole subject. And whatever we come up with as far as the answer to how to make things harmonious between Islam and the people who are not as Islamic is going to have a lot to do with the fate of the world, I think, at this point. So, I do, too. I do, too. Richard, yep. it's always fun talking to you. You're fun to yep. talk with. Hold on. And we'll remember, we're talking about my favorite subject. I know, I know. I, I hope you'll do it again with us. Hold oh, on. I will. We'll you in a minute. You're easy to talk to. Okay, hold on here. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.